Are you ready to be transported back to 1800s high society London? Because season three of Bridgerton is now playing only on Netflix. This season follows the story of the Tons resident wallflower, Penelope Featherington, as she undergoes a journey of self-discovery and empowerment where we see her truly blossom. Penn's emotional transformation takes centre stage as her friendship with the charming Colin Bridgerton evolves into something more. For those not yet acquainted, Colin, the charming younger brother of the Bridgerton family, is about to turn Penelope's world upside down. Mm, This is the ultimate good friends to lovers story. From those initial butterflies to when both parties realise there might be something more between them, watch Bridgerton Season 3, now playing only on Netflix. After we do this, I'll probably sit on my couch and think about the whole conversation over in my mind for the rest of the day, probably tomorrow, probably next week. I'll think about every answer that I gave and how I could have done it better. And welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless. Today we are joined by trailblazer Michelle Battersby. For those unacquainted, Battersby has cemented herself as one of the leading women in Australia's tech industry. She's the country lead of the Bumble Australia Empire and Associate Marketing Director for the Asia Pacific region. Just a few small titles there. We caught up with Michelle in her home and think you'll really enjoy this chat. Here's Michelle. Michelle Battersby, welcome to Shameless. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We were going to have a very DIY set up before, but now we've got Zara just standing at a microphone. I know. <laughs> I'm very fit now. I'm going to stand for this entire episode, so we're going to have to see how this goes. If I just, <laughs> if my voice starts lowering, it's because I'm falling off the mic. <laughs> She's actually gone. She's dropped out. <laughs> um, Michelle, we start every episode the same way. I'm sure you're across it by now. What are you listening, watching or reading at the moment? Would you recommend any of it? I just listened to the Silk Road episode on Case Files. Ooh. Do you know about Silk what Road? What is that? It's the guy who basically was selling drugs on the deep web. Mm. Um, but it's interesting because a case just broke recently in Sydney, I think, with a young guy doing the exact same thing. But he'd made like, I think it was over a billion dollars selling drugs, guns on, on the deep web. And is that Case Files' latest episode? Or it's, is it- it's not their latest episode. No, I actually, I am. this is how much of a freak I am. I overheard someone talking about it at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that sounds good. Note that. And then, yeah, I listened to it and it was great. Do you like true crime? I love crime. Okay. Yeah. I used to love crime and I can't do it to myself anymore. But I- I'm surprised you said that because I've heard you talk about anxiety before. Yeah. And well, I, I feel like I'll be prepared if I ever get kidnapped. That's exactly what I used to think <laughs> as well. And then I started walking through the world and feeling like... I, like death was everywhere and someone was going to jump out and murder me from any corner that I went around. It just wasn't healthy. I just always found it scary too, but I think I'll listen to that Silk Road episode because it's not necessarily murderous. No, it's kind of business. <laughs> yeah. Like Smart. evil business. Yeah. yeah. Smart in a weird way. Mm. You spend a lot of time traveling, so you are kind of splitting your time at the moment between Melbourne and Sydney. Do you have any time to watch things or is it mainly reading and listening because that's the nature of your commute city to city? Podcasts are huge for me um, because I also drive to and from work when in Sydney um, and I live in Manly. So it's about 45 minutes to the office. So that's kind of my time to zone out where I can digest some current affairs or do meditation or listen to some crime. And then 
in the evenings I do try to keep it very light. Uh, so Real Housewives of Beverly Hills oh, has just come out Housewives. with a new season. I live for that. Mm. Don't need to think much. Can just kind of sit in awe of their conversations and <laughs> lifestyle. <laughs> have you watched much of it, Michelle? I did when I used to have Foxtel, but I don't have it anymore. So I'm missing it a lot. See, I, I buy it. Like that's how badly obsessed I am. Like You're I buy it fan. on iTunes. Yeah, that's commitment. That is commitment. So take us back to the start. What were you like as a kid? What was your childhood like before everything else happened? Very normal childhood, I would say. Very outdoorsy, active. I'm the eldest of three girls. So I feel like I've always had this kind of girl gang around me with sisters and friends. That's true. You were destined to work with and for women. (laughs) Yeah, I've always loved that. Um, And I'm really close with my sisters. But majority of my childhood was probably spent playing sport. Um, So any sport under the sun, nippers, little athletics, the only thing that kind of got me up every day, I would say. But pretty chilled. Yeah, grew up in Manly, very normal. Mm. Were you super competitive? You used to do rowing, is that right? Yeah, I have always been very competitive, especially when it comes to sport. I think that is a result of my family. Both my parents were elite athletes. So I think I was born thinking I was almost destined to be an athlete and that's what I saw myself doing. Um, And I think also when you're born into a family like that, my dad was an Olympic rower. So every time I would row, I would hear them talking about my dad over the loudspeakers. And there was kind of always focus on me in that way, I suppose. So I think I always felt competitive because if I didn't win, it was like letting down that whole family name I suppose which is nothing ever placed on me just something I always felt no that's really funny because usually that comes I think or even just anecdotally as like a younger sibling coming behind someone and being very competitive about that but did you feel that kind of internal pressure then because your parents were so high performing yeah so I actually I moved schools when I was in year 11 for rowing um, and I remember when I moved to that school I would hear people be you know they'd say like oh that's the girl whose dad's an Olympian or you know my mum was also really good so I felt like people expected me to move to this school and I've got to be the best. And I always put that pressure on myself, like must be the best, must win. There's already this kind of perception that you're going to be great. So it's actually really embarrassing when you're not. So that was definitely something that I struggled with and probably also a reason why I ended up giving it up because I did put so much pressure on myself. And if I wasn't going to be the best, then I decided I'd stop. It's so funny you say that. I grew up with two sisters as well and we were all competitive netballers. And I was talking to Zara about this Mm. yesterday that I feel like that competitive edge that we were all trained almost from like when we were kids, not my parents' fault, it's just the household we grew up in, that I feel like that has now bled into every aspect of my life, that I'm just naturally a competitive person. And I know that's not the most attractive (laughs) trait to have, but it's true that even in career and stuff, I really want to get ahead Do you feel that's the same with your career? I completely, I can definitely relate to that. And I think that's one thing that I've really had to work on as well. Like what is worth my time? What is worth me focusing on and trying to push myself this hard? Because I'm always going to push myself really hard to succeed or be great at something or um, even just having real passion about something, which I think is great. But then it definitely does come with a lot of self-imposed pressure. And the way I felt about sport definitely isn't the way I have ended up feeling about my job or like having material things or friendships or relationships. I think I've been quite good at separating all of that. And I think it is because 
the kind of family dynamic was what was adding a lot of that pressure onto me. So I've been able to put a lot of energy into that, push that to the side and then move on um, with a more positive outlook on other things and not hold being the best um, so close to what I do in day-to-day life now. Well, I think that's a good point because I think being competitive is can be healthy as long as it's sort of like embedded with drive and you can kind of separate that drive a bit which you both obviously clearly have thanks Sarah (laughs) both my Michelle's I'm counseling them both as I stand and so did that sort of translate to school that kind of uh, drive and competitiveness or as a sports you know obsessed kid was it sort of just sport and that's it it was definitely just sport and that's it. I yeah. was not academic at school and I think it's because I'd already accepted the fact that that wasn't going to be my thing. Sport was going to be my thing so I was going to put 100% of my energy into that um, and I like I got a scholarship to uni for rowing so again it kind of transposed in my university life and I wasn't very um, academically focused at uni either and it wasn't until I quit rowing um and then that's when I started doing my master's degree at Sydney uni and then I put all of my energy into that because it's like my passion project had almost moved it was sport up until I was 22 and then it was going to be my master's degree and then it was going to be my first job and now I suppose it's bumble (laughs) are you the kind of person where it's 100% or nothing Absolutely. Yeah. I like dive head in. Um, I, I also often don't think much before I do that. Thoughts are overrated. <laughs> yeah. I throw myself into something and I think uh, that's one of the great things about having done sport at quite a competitive level is I've definitely learned how to deal with pressure. I've learned how to be in very uncomfortable environments. I've learned how to mask nervous energy and not show people how scared you might be. Um, so I think those are some of the positives that have come from that. Um, but definitely once I'm in, I'm all in. Did you have some kind of identity crisis then once you gave rowing up? Because I know from the people around me, like even my sister, when she gave up competitive sport, there's very much a sense of, okay, who am I now? What do I do with my time? And what's the plan? Mm -hmm. I can see myself still like crying in the counselor's room. Um, so I did, Uh, go to counselling sessions after I gave up rowing just because I had genuinely believed I was going to be amazing at that. When you see your parents do these great things, it makes that kind of success seem really attainable. Um, So when I finally realised I wasn't going to be an Olympian and quit rowing, I saw that as a huge moment of failure for me. Um, So I did see a counsellor and it was a lot of unpacking that and working out what my purpose was going to be. Um, I'd probably been in the banking industry around that point for a couple of years. So I think I was struggling with a few things um, beginning to work out that maybe the career I'd chosen wasn't really for me. I hadn't really been training. Um, Nothing was controlling my time like it had been for so much of my life. So I definitely did go through some personal struggles um but I think that's natural and something that a lot of well anyone who's done some element of competitive sport would struggle with I think we've seen so many of those stories in the news um so pretty normal Mm. how did it come about then because you didn't just jump into Bumble straight after you decided rowing wasn't for you what was that process then you went into banking yeah I wish it had happened like that (laughs) um 
Yeah, so I, I studied a master's in HR and honestly really loved it. It taught me how to think critically, strategically. I liked what I was studying. Then I got an internship at Citibank, loved it, walked through the resol- revolving doors in the city and my five-year-old self was like, fuck yeah, you <laughs> have nailed this. Killing it. <laughs> yeah, like welcome to the big leagues. Um, so worked in banking, which was great. Got exposed to, you know, very smart people high-performing industry, highly regulated, learnt a lot about the structure of a business, working in a back office function, which was HR. Um, HR is heavily female-dominated in a male-dominated industry that created a culture that I honestly didn't really like. Um, I... I struggled to find women who were more senior than me that I could really look up to. I learnt a harsh lesson in how important it is to have people around you that support you and want you to succeed. So once I started working out all of these kind of things, I uh, started thinking about what could possibly be an option for me. Um, And that's when I moved out of banking and went to PwC basically to try a different industry. That worked as a Band-Aid for a little while and then I found myself back in the same position sitting at my desk thinking, I know I'm better than this. I just didn't really feel like I was applying myself. I also didn't feel passionate about it. I remember looking around the room and overhearing conversations thinking, how can you possibly love this? Like, I don't understand (laughs) why. Why do you care so much? Which might be a bad reflection on me. Um, But I couldn't understand why people cared so much. I I didn't understand how anyone could really feel passionately about what they were doing. Um, And that's when I started to... Yeah, realised that I, I needed to try something else. So did that kind of, did working in that industry harden you or make you a little bit cynical because of like the gender dynamics and not having a mentor? I think it probably hardened me because I was quite young um, and I did get a really great opportunity. I was managing my own department. So looking after about 250 people as their HR manager. Which is crazy. How old were you at that point? 22. Oh my God. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. So I was going into meetings with honestly like the head of, you know, the trading floor um, at Citibank and kind of talking to them about what they were going to do with their team or if they were having issues with someone or what we were going to do around performance management time um, and having to give people advice. Obviously I had a manager who I could bounce ideas off and everything like that. But I think that hardened me because I had to put on a really brave face, be very confident in my delivery of things uh, and not be intimidated by anyone I was sitting in front of. And some of those people were very intimidating. Did you feel like there was a target on your back when you're so high achieving so young? Did you feel like other people were threatened by that success or threatened even by how young you were to be so high up in the company? I actually had a couple of strange instances where um, it was two occasions actually where other women actually asked me like why I was doing what I was doing. Like, I like I don't know, like you're too young or you look a certain way, like why, why do you want to do this? Um, like one woman actually said to me, you're wasted here. Like I don't really know what she was implying by that, but um, I definitely feel like sometimes, I don't know, people can make assumptions about you um, – I felt like within my department there was a bit of a target on my back once um, the person who'd hired me had left and that's kind of what I was referring to when I say how important it is to have people around you that support you and want to see you succeed Um, and that is something that I have definitely taken with me because I never want anyone to feel like that working with me and I never want anyone to feel intimidated I, I never want anyone to feel like they can't approach me. 
um, I've definitely yeah felt that kind of negative energy and that's why um, I mean in these first conversations with Whitney when I got my job she really sold me on women supporting other women and that is so spoken about now but not so much um, at that time and that's what really got me. We will get to that conversation, that initial conversation that you had with Whitney in a second, but I am interested because I think a lot of people listening to this episode will have found themselves in a similar scenario that you found yourself in where you were unhappy with your job and not sure which way it was going to take you or what you were going to do. What was that kind of mid-20s kind of work crisis like and how did you get out of it? It's strange because I have definitely found myself in little ruts since and I haven't been able to get myself to where I did get myself back then. And what happened was, it's weird because I remember it and it was like I just had this epiphany and I just made a lot of changes within myself. And a lot of it was what you put out is what you get back. And I realised I wasn't happy and I wasn't liking it, but I wasn't going to let myself coast in that situation. So I actually did what no HR manager would ever advise anyone to do. And I quit my job without having another job to put the pressure on myself. So you've got no other option now, you know, you're not happy and you've got to go do something about it. So I quit my job, started looking for other roles, got another job within that one month notice period. And that was the role at PwC. But I started just having a more positive outlook within myself, to be honest. Like I moved out of home to really change that up. I uh, quit my job, a relationship ended and it triggered a lot of change in me. And I was 25 and I think it was exactly what I needed. And that led me to being more open-minded and receptive to the opportunities that were presenting themselves at me. Uh, Then I started getting invited to like weird little events and talking to the right people, starting to explore other options that were never going to happen, like being a PT or becoming a blogger. But it was just like opening my mind to whatever possibilities might come my way. And then honestly, like lo and behold, Bumble came to me. It's actually funny, the power of saying yes. I am kind of occasionally a no person when it comes to meeting new people or networking because I just find it such a wank. I need to pull you what? out of your couch or off your couch. But I just sometimes. like, I just, if I want to socialise, I want to socialise with my friends. Like yep. if that's where my time is going. But I've, I have learnt so much in the last maybe <laughs> six to 12 months about just saying yes to talking to people mm. because that's how you get yourself out of those career ruts or sort of find yep. new opportunities. Like the power of conversation is crazy. But also the power of change. Like throw yourself out of your comfort zone. Like I just gave myself no other option, like sink or swim. You know what I mean? I upended every stable element of my life all at once to spark mass change in myself and it worked. And I'm not saying that's the right way to go about it, but it's one way to drive an immediate kind of response and to change the way you may be thinking about things. It sounds like you completely gave yourself a blank slate to start again, like end of a relationship, quit your job. To do that at 25, I feel like it sounds really young now, but in the moment it must have been really scary. Yeah, but it's it's strange because I felt so confident and positive about it all. Like I was in probably the best mindset I've ever been in my whole life. And I just felt like, yep, you've done all the right things. You really needed to do this. Uh, I don't know. I just felt it's weird because in such mass change, I felt extremely comfortable. Because you have nothing to lose. Yeah. And I think that's huge. Like there's power in that too. Mm -hmm. Coming up after the break, how to grow a cult brand from the ground up and the women Michelle sources inspiration from. So tell us about this first conversation you had with Whitney. We keep referring to Whitney. That is obviously Whitney Wolf Heard who started Bumble. 
four years ago? Yeah, four years ago. Is so, it only four years? Yeah, isn't that crazy? Holy shit. Well, late 2014. So four and a half. Well, four yeah. and a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Good math. That everyone. is crazy. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> That's insane. So how did you get in touch with her? I mean, I imagine it's not like you pick up the phone and start talking to her. No, definitely not. A friend of mine referred me to Whitney. So one of these people that I'd started talking to when I was realising I wasn't on the right path uh, was a friend of mine who uh, was then later approached by Whitney to launch Bumble in Australia. She was living in London at the time and wasn't going to be moving back to Oz, but she uh, referred me, sent Whitney an email introducing me, um, and then Whitney was quite persistent and really wanted to get on the phone. At that point, I honestly hadn't heard of Bumble um, and I'd never used a dating app. So I was a little reluctant, honestly, to get on the phone. Like there was a period where I was unsure if I was going to take the call, but then I was sitting at my desk, Whitney emailed, I saw a free meeting room. So I just ran into it um, and got on the phone with her. And it's one of those moments in your life where you remember far too much about that day. You know what I mean? When something big happens, you can remember what you had for breakfast or how you got to work or what you're looking at. And that's exactly what happened to me. Um, We spoke on the phone for about an hour. She told me about Bumble. She told me about what her goal was for Bumble. And I just believed, I believed it. I believed that what she was saying she was going to do, she was going to do. And I believed that I could help her do it. Um, and again, she, at that point, Bumble BFF, which is the friend finding vertical had just been introduced onto the platform. And that was really when she was talking about women supporting other women and the kind of culture she was creating at the organization, uh, her background. And I just felt like we had this connection and we've both spoken about it since. And we say the same thing, like we can't really describe it, but we just both felt it, I suppose. So I actually quit my job that day and have been running around ever since (laughs) it's funny because you do have such a senior position in bumble but it's also a really public position that your instagram profile and your profile in general you have to run events you have to be the face of the brand here in australia how has that been going from a very professional um conventional workforce like banking and hr into what you're doing now and almost being a personality yourself I was actually speaking about this the other day with someone and it's interesting because the role I was offered was never that at the beginning. You know what I mean? It's really developed and I think that's been one of the great things about working for Bumble is I've really been given the freedom and I could steer the ship where I wanted it to go and this role has really evolved as I have evolved, which I think is something that that I'm very grateful for. If I had known it was going to be like this back then, I don't know if I would have had the confidence then to say yes. I'm not sure if I would have thought I was capable of it. I probably would have freaked out and gone back to my desk. But I think, yeah, I've had to definitely um, overcome self-doubt, worry, nerves, and really roll with the punches. Everything moves so quickly in a startup. The time frame to feel fear is minimal. Things, public appearances are sprung on me on the day. You know, I could arrive at, I've been in Melbourne and been called to say, hey, you need to go live on Sky News at 3 p.m. And I'm like in an Uber getting back to Sydney to go live on TV. So there isn't much time to feel fear. I think probably studying what I studied like I had to do a lot of presentations and speeches and things during my master's degree and I think I built up a little bit of confidence then addressing a room but there was a period when the role started shifting from more planning hiring structuring to 
addressing a room, doing press. And it was at that point I started to get a lot of nerves um, and had a couple of panic attacks where, you know, I would lose the feeling in my legs, head would start spinning and I would feel like I was going to faint, not really knowing what was driving it, but it was honestly all just fear of having to stand up and speak to a room of influential people. But as I said, those days come so quickly and they keep coming. So you've got to find ways to get over that. And if I'm not going to do it, no one else is. So if I don't do it, I'm losing opportunity for the business. Who counsels you then on how to have a personal brand? And I know it sounds like such a dicky thing to say, but in this kind of area that we live in, having a personal brand that's strong and people trust is sometimes crucial to the business that you're working for if you are suddenly becoming kind of accidentally the face of the business. Does anybody talk to you about that or is that kind of something that you just navigate yourself? A bit of both. Um, I mean, I I have done media training, which really helped. Like even just watching yourself back on camera, I realised I lick my lips a lot when I'm nervous. So I'm like, (laughs) that ain't great for television. Like we've got to rein that in. But it is a bit of both. I think I'm very, very lucky to have the support that I do from the US. You know, we've got a great head of comms. I am fortunate to be close with a lot of the first people that were hired in the US. So I go to them whenever I'm worried. And honestly, I think I find so much safety in just hearing them here. You know, you're going to nail it, asking them about my response on a certain question, but also having a great PR team on the ground. I mean, they have been aware of how nervous I can get before going on TV. So they actually just won't tell me until the day because then I've just got to go and do it. And my, all my worry the night before isn't going to amount to anything and it's destructive and not helpful. So there's actually no point knowing because the fact is the brand mission has always been so clear from from the moment I started. So in terms of preparation and things like that, I feel like I've always been very, very across our brand, what we stand for, what our goals are. And that also helps me manage my own personal brand because my personal brand has grown based on Bumble, which I think is amazing. I want to be known for the fact that I work for Bumble and then have people in turn know what Bumble stands for. So I'm never going to stray from anything that's detrimental to our brand. So I I guess I'm somewhat controlled in that sense, but I'm able to do that because I genuinely care and I'm so passionate about the brand and I wouldn't be in this role. I don't think I would have been able to do what I've done if I wasn't so entwined with it. It's funny you talk about those little bouts of anxiety because the first day we met you was at the Melbourne Cup and you looked incredible, like you always look immaculate and your life on Instagram looks immaculate as well like most of our lives do. How has that been? Have you always been open about having anxiety or is that something that you've really been more transparent about in the last six months or so? I actually didn't know if it was something that I should bring up and I didn't know if it was something people wanted to know about. I'm really open, so if anyone was to ever ask, I, of course, would tell them. I guess this is something I'm learning at the moment. Like, honestly, I'm not really sure why anyone follows me on Instagram, like, is it all because of Bumble? Is it like, do you think I have cool clothes? Like, do you- People just start messaging Michelle and tell her why they're following her and then you'll <laughs> yeah, get the answer. I'd love to know because if it is more about me as a person, then 100% I'd be open to opening up on those kinds of things. But also I guess with my anxiety, it literally started at age six. Like I lost my hair and had bald patches on my head when I was six years old. So it also is just so normal 
to me. I, I'm not sure. I guess I haven't felt if I need to kind of speak about it as much as I have been lately, but also so many people struggle with it and everyone's experience with it is different. So I'm also not a doctor um, and I don't know the best approach to things. I just know what's worked for me. It's funny. I The first time we did meet you, and I hope you don't even mind me retelling this story, but oh, we no. were having a conversation <laughs> with you and I, we were talking about the marquee at the races and I remember commenting that it was so perfectly put together and everything was so well planned and everything looked perfect. And you looked at us and you said, I had a panic attack like a week ago and I changed every single thing in this thing because I questioned every decision that I'd ever made. It was a complete disaster and we had to redo everything from the ground up. And I remember being so taken aback by that because the the presence that you have is so not that. Mm. Um, How do you sort of grapple with those two things? The fact that people might think you are very across everything at every time and very sure of every decision you make when in reality it might be a little bit different. I mean, the Melbourne Cup was huge and that is exactly what happened. And I'm really glad that happened. If I, I did have a panic attack a couple of weeks before Melbourne Cup and I changed the entire interior design of our marquee, even two days before it opened, I walked in, took a selfie, realized that the lighting was shit on that side. So we needed to move the bar to the other side of the room. And it sounds frivolous, (laughs) but that type of stuff is important. If you want to be shared on social media and if you want the reach to be right, then you need to have good lighting. I think this was another lesson for me. I was actually talking about this with someone yesterday. I'm helping launch a few countries in East Asia this year. And one of my big things has always been, you know, backing yourself and going with your gut. Um, And I think I learned early on when I didn't go with my gut, the output wasn't what it could have or should have been. And I should have just listened to my gut. And that's what happened with Melbourne Cup. I thought, hey, this is something I've not done before. I've got a good gauge on what we should do, but I'm going to really lean on some other external sources to support this and to really back up where I'm thinking it should go. And then a couple of weeks before execution, I looked at it all again and I just thought, hell no, like this isn't it. Uh, I'm not comfortable with this. I can't present this. And I changed it all and I went with my gut and it did make work harder, but I'm so glad I did that because if I hadn't have made that decision, I don't think that the results would have been the same. And I also wouldn't have felt confident in the work that effectively is mine. Um, so I definitely, that was one of my more recent panic attacks. Um, and I think that's just high, high pressure situation. But at the end of the day, that nervous energy resulted in a good outcome. As someone with anxiety, it does always, uh, I guess, intrigue me. What are your triggers and how does your anxiety manifest? Because for me, as I said before, it's true crime and feeling like death is around the corner for me. What's it like for you? Mine's very personal. So after we do this, I'll probably sit on my couch and think about the whole conversation over in my mind for the rest of the day, probably tomorrow, probably next week. I'll think about every answer that I gave and how I could have done it better. So it's very self-critical. I don't like to make mistakes and I like everything I do to be executed at the highest level. However, I'm also very aware of the fact everyone needs to make mistakes and I'm in a very fortunate position where I am allowed to make mistakes and I can work out what's worked and what's not worked and I'm in a very understanding environment but I do put a lot of pressure on myself to execute things to a really high level, to to talk about these the right way. So it's just very self-reflective and self yeah, self-critical, I would say. It's funny you say that because I'm a perfectionist and I have anxiety and I feel like I feel very divided because I feel like anxiety has made me good at what I do 
But personally, in my personal life, it is also such a bitch and it's so hard to navigate. But without my anxiety, I would not be the person that I am at the moment because it is that competitive edge that I have with myself that I always want to be better and I always want to be perfect in everything that I do. Do you feel the same thing that you wouldn't have your personality if you didn't have anxiety? Yeah, definitely. And I think all of my friends are aware of it. And also because I have had it from such a young age and everyone kind of knows, oh, like here she goes. (laughs) (laughs) Like she's doing it again. Or even Bill um, will be like, we need to reset. Um, Like if I've gone off on some little tangent or just been a bit unreasonable about something, but mine is definitely overthinking. So just controlling that And also because I can be so passionate about certain things, like knowing when you need to take a step back um, or knowing when you need to go on a holiday or when you need to take, like do meditate or something. That's something I've started this year that I never thought I would be interested in or would help me. And I always kind of rolled my eyes when anyone spoke about meditation. And now I do it every single night before I go to bed. And it's really helped me because mine is all about switching off my mind um, and to not continually overthink what I've done that day. If you do have such high expectations for yourself and if you are such a perfectionist, what are you like as a boss then? Do you find that you expect the same things of other people that you expect of yourself? It's interesting because after I stopped rowing, I actually started doing rowing coaching and it was because a teacher had heard me doing some netball stuff at school actually and he told the rowing coaches that he thought I was really great with this team and so I started coaching after school and I feel like that really taught me how to be a good leader. So whilst... I think this has always been it for me, though. It's very internalised. It's very expectations on myself. And I never want to put that those kind of perfectionist tendencies onto other people. I think I am really understanding. I think being the eldest of three girls, I've always kind of had this, you know, little squad. Um, I'm like, like a leader. I feel like even playing competitive sport, like you learn so many leadership qualities. Yeah. And also my, all of my sport was always team. So yeah. I was never an individual player. I was always part of a team. That's the only thing I ever missed finishing rowing. Like I miss the feeling of winning with a group. Like I like celebrating other people's successes. I think, you know, I have so many smart, amazing women in my team. Like I want to see them be the best that they can be and succeed and us all do it together and everything is more enjoyable when you've done it with others as opposed to doing it by yourself. You mentioned Bill before your partner. How long have you guys been together and how is it being in a long distance relationship? Honestly, really hard. And I think I was fortunate in the first year of getting my job, actually. Um, I don't know if you know who Jackie Frank is, um, but she basically launched my car in Australia, was the GM of Pacific Mags. Of course, you know who you who she is. You're both <laughs> journalists. <laughs> yeah. But for anyone else out no, there. Good that you did that. It would be embarrassing if we didn't know who she was. <laughs> um, but we worked with her to launch Bumblebiz and she started mentoring me. And I feel so fortunate to have come across her within that first year because I really idolise her. And one thing she said to me was, you can have it all, but not all at once. And I'm so glad I heard that because I think I probably would have put a lot of pressure on myself to really keep it all together and have it all going and I think that's one of the worst things about social media to be honest is it can just look like you're so composed and you've got all these great things going on in your life but it's honestly very hard um you know I'm working uh across different countries at the moment managing a team in Sydney which I absolutely love um but at the moment my focus is definitely my job because I see this as a once in a lifetime opportunity and it's a huge startup that's come to Australia from the US and I don't know when and if that's ever going to happen again so I need to give as much as I can to this right now because 
I am learning so much. I'm meeting so many amazing people. I love what I'm doing. And that's my, that is honestly my key focus. And I think another thing Jackie also said to me was, it's really important that you find a partner that, you know, you kind of can bounce off one another and you're a team. And I think I'm fortunate in the fact that Bill is a professional rugby player. So he's constantly traveling all the time and there's not that expectation. Neither one of us is letting the other down and his career is also in its height right now. So he's got to give everything he can uh, because I don't know how long people can play professional rugby for, but like it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's something that a lot of people don't talk about when it comes to being able to be good at your job. How Having people around you that let you commit that much time and energy is crucial to your and its success. Yeah, absolutely. And it wouldn't work if there. It wouldn't work if I had a boyfriend in Sydney who's just sitting at home waiting for me. But also, I just wouldn't want to be with someone like that. Well, motivated people <laughs> attract motivated people. Yeah. I think as well. Yeah, yeah. Michelle, for the people listening, the young women who are listening who are sort of in the depths of their career or working out, I mean, working it out, you obviously have a great career and sort of are at the head of a great company. What kind of career advice would you give people, young women who are starting out? Do you have any? I I honestly think like intuition and your gut, it, I, I hate to keep banging on about it, but it's just when something feels right, it is right. And when something feels wrong, it is wrong. But I also think some people are okay... Um, Like I would say that I was coasting and just doing what I thought I should be doing before I ended up at Bumble. And I knew deep down I wasn't okay with that. So I feel like if anyone else feels that way, you've got to be proactive and having a conversation with someone or reaching out to another or even just asking someone you work with, one thing can really lead to the other. And I would say just really be open to opportunities and don't expect things to just come to you. And when opportunities do present themselves, like... As, as you were talking about in my job at the moment, I feel like I'm a gatekeeper and I've ended up saying no to a lot, but at the start, you really do have to say yes. And I went from pitching to brands and really trying to get brands to partner with us, to putting the barriers up and saying, actually, no, we're not going to take this opportunity. But I think when you're at the start like that, take every and any opportunity you can get. You are your own harshest critic. I feel like everyone listening to this would look at you and feel like she is successful. That would be what everyone tells themselves. Do you consider yourself successful and how do you define success if you are such a perfectionist? I actually recently read Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, the story of how he um, started Nike. And it honestly really changed my perception of success because I think I read that book and felt like his life was really a grind. Like it was very hard. He didn't pay himself for years. And then it's like, Nike ended up being valued at 78 million or something back when it, you know, he decided he was going to, I don't know, tap out or something. It was floating. I can't even remember. Um, and I, I kind of reflected on that and thought mm, you would look at him and think amazing success, but I didn't feel like he was really happy. That's not the sense that I got when I was reading his book. I, I definitely wouldn't call myself successful. Maybe I'm on the journey to success. Um, I think I'm extremely, uh, I'm in an extremely fortunate position at the moment. I have a lot of creative freedom. Um, Whitney taught me one of the best lessons ever, which is to scale a business, you really have to trust other people. And I think that's what I'm trying to do now, you know, expanding into the APAC market. But um, 
yeah, I don't, I don't think I'd call myself successful. It actually makes me feel uncomfortable. It's uh, an awkward question. It's every, yeah. it's every person with anxiety's least favorite question. I don't, I don't know how I would define success. You know, I think it's different for everyone. And I also think it changes depending on what life stage you're at. Like I'm 27 and a lot of my friends are getting engaged, having kids. And I used to look at that and think that was success. Um, right now for me, that isn't what success is mm. right now. Success for me is learning as much as I absolutely can within this time frame. Um, and right now it's spreading the Bumble mission across Australia, New Zealand into, into East Asia. And I want to learn as many different cultures as I possibly can. And doing that, that provides me with stimulation and makes me feel like I'm succeeding. We heard a really good definition the other day. I, thought, we I was actually about to say this. Yeah. I feel like you're going to say it. We were listening to How I Built This with the founder of Burt's Bees. I cannot remember her name for the life of me, but Roxanne. she built this hundreds of millions of dollars company. And her definition was not happiness, not defining it by happiness, but defining it by how fulfilled she was. Mm. And I feel like when you flip that, I would feel successful then if it's based on how fulfilled I am. Do you feel fulfilled in what you're doing at the moment? A hundred percent. I think the pressure's off then as well, because I have always had this obsession with making sure that I'm always happy, which is just stupidly unrealistic because you're not going to always be happy. But if you do flip it and say, well, how do I make sure I'm fulfilled? I think you can be fulfilled a lot of the time with your own decisions. Like you have control over that. Yeah, for sure. The last place we end up, which is something you've already touched on already a couple of times when you've mentioned Whitney and Jackie Frank, who are the kinds of women that you have in your life who you look up to and who should we be looking up to too if they're your mentors or people that you just like following? So I guess in terms of people I look up to, I've got the ones that I know and then the ones that I don't know. Yeah. Um, so working at Bumble, I feel like I am surrounded by inspirational, inspirational women in my day-to-day in Sydney and then also offshore. You know, my manager in London is more creative than I will ever be. Um, and Whitney, of course, how can you not be inspired by someone who has been through what she's been through and come out and making a positive difference in the world? Um, but then also just women who have created brands that have cult followings. I am inspired by that kind of thing. So even, you know, Kayla, it's Dina's, I don't know how to say her last name. I, I think it's, it's Sina's, but I only learned that like two weeks ago. I used to bang on about it all the time. Yeah. Cause yeah. I used to call her Kayla, it's signs. Same. <laughs> Everybody did. But, but that is amazing, you know, to create this community. Um, and I think that's one of the most satisfying things about working at Bumble as well is I feel like that's really the path we're on but also you know like Glossier and those kind of brands where they've got these cult followings. It's so crazy you were saying this because we literally wrote down a question that we didn't ask about cult following brands and we've listed Glossier we listed um, GoTo with Zoe Foster yeah. Blake we listed a whole lot of brands mm. that we like how do you build a cult brand but now and, <laughs> and we literally and we literally put them in the same we were thinking Bumble is like all of those brands that Bumble has that same it's almost like when you've you say a brand name and you have a feeling like when I hear Mecca, I'm like, Oh, I feel joy. I literally wrote Mecca on my piece of paper. Mm. I was reading about her yesterday and she started Mecca in 1997 Crazy. and find, try and find a woman today who hasn't bought something from a Mecca store. Mm. Bumble is one of those cult brands that we were talking about before we met with you. Like that makes me feel satisfied, you know, hearing that because even one of the first things I thought having this kind of um taking this role I thought oh I want to make Bumble in Australia you know like a Google where all of these people at university are finishing their degrees and they're coming out saying I want to get a job at Bumble I just really wanted to create that kind of a feel um more on like the business side and I guess that's where my HR brain was kind of tracking at that point um but yeah I think cult following brands that that gives you that gives you a sense of 
success for sure Michelle thank you so much for coming on the show when you do find yourself later today rethinking this interview please know how much we have loved having it (laughs) and loved all your answers Um, you are such a great person to sort of have as a public businesswoman in Australia I know that comes across kind of strangely but it's really nice for for young women to be able to look up to you and to, to know that these are the kinds of things they can do too thank you thanks so much I love you guys Thanks so much to listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless. If you love Michelle as much as we do, go check her out on Instagram at Michelle Battersby. We will be back in your ears this Monday as always. But until then, find us on Instagram at Shameless Podcast or on Facebook at Shameless Podcast Community. Bye, guys. Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.